want to go to there. Snipe! Saw the window and I just couldn't resist it. Francie doesn't like coffee ice cream. Hi, for those of you who just tuned in, everyone here is a crazy person. Are we having fun yet? <laughs> yes. Thirty Helens agree. Never mind. Maybe the dingo ate your baby. It's kind of flat, actually. Would you believe it? And you beautiful tropical fish. Don't mention the war. Clear eyes, still hearts get Hello and welcome to the Televerse, Sound On Sight's TV podcast. This is Kate Kulzik and I'm joined as ever by Sean Coletti. Sean, how's it going? It's great. I love technology. Isn't it wonderful? Especially when it just screws you over time and again. It's just fun. Yeah. Yeah. It just brightens my day. <laughs> We've had a difficult time trying to record uh, this week, so we're just going to dive right in without the normal pleasantries. Um, at the top of the show, I wanted to mention that we'll be talking with Sarah Rodman of the Boston Globe later on to, about uh, Mary Tyler Moore show, which was so much fun. Unfortunately, you were not able to join us for that conversation. So this is another one with just myself and Sarah. Have you seen any Mary Tyler Moore? Uh, I've seen repeats, or I should say I saw repeats growing up. Um, they're relatively vague in my memory, though. Um, yeah, it's one that I just hadn't made the time to watch, and I'm so glad that I did now. But you, you'll hear me talk all about that at the end of the podcast. This week we spoke with a bunch of you guys, talked with Keith, talked with uh, Kyle and Carl about Fargo, Kyle, Jason, Tessa, and Shad in D.C. about Dominion. Noel has thoughts on what uh, he should make me watch. I hear animes in my future. I guess so, and uh, he's the right guy for the recommendations because he threw about two dozen my way. Uh, Carl is currently up to episode 3 of In the Flesh, so at least another one of our listeners is watching. Beth wanted to let us know that, because uh, I tweeted out about this, but last week uh, Helena did save the kids from the fire, apparently, in a cut scene. So she's uh, she's growing as a person. It's nice. She's no longer the crazy person who Sarah needs to shoot in the finale. Well, I don't know. We're going to talk about the finale later in the podcast, but I feel like that's not too much of a spoiler if somebody's not caught up yet. No, Helena does not get shot by Sarah in the finale. Or if she does, we're just tricking you. Ooh, yes. It is one of those things. <laughs> um, Genevieve uh, chimed in on the Battle of the Breakfast Foods. Apparently the correct answer is crepes. Pancakes are fine, but crepes kick butt. And French toast with brioche or crusty bread is also heaven. I've never had French toast that was heaven, but I know you did say that you're a fan. So is that if I just not had the right kind? Hey, French toast. More more votes for that. So that's good. Um, it's I don't know. I'm gonna have to take this whole battle of the breakfast more seriously and uh, go to all of my favorite local places and try everything. Cause you know I got my favorites at the places and I kind of know their styles of pancakes and whatnot. But uh, I'm willing to reevaluate this because this is science, damn it. <laughs> that sounds about right. Um, let's see. Brian sent us a track off of Brian Reitzel's, Reitzel's new album. Of course, he's the uh, composer of the score for Hannibal, which is as good a way as any to get into uh, the fact that our Hannibal podcasts are going to be starting back up soon. Yes, we are unfortunately a little bit behind there, also due to technical difficulties. So don't blame us. Blame the Internet. <laughs> or the lack of the Internet. Uh, as it was the case for me much of this week. Um, but yeah, so that's been a lot of fun, and I, I look forward to you guys hearing hearing those as they start to come out, hopefully this week. 
fingers crossed. Let's knock on wooden type things. Um, but soon, soon is feels like a safer thing to say. Uh, about Hannibal versus Fargo, Les says that Hannibal would have Malvo for breakfast, literally. Uh, I don't know. What do you say, Hannibal or Fargo? Well, this is somewhat related to the question of the week as well. Uh, without a doubt for me, Hannibal. Uh, but we'll be talking about Fargo and my reactions to it later. And as for that, the first panel information, at least that I'm particularly paying attention to, is out this week. And apparently Hannibal will be having a panel at Comic-Con on the Thursday of that week, which means that I think my sister and I will be able to, to go, which means we'll be in line at like four in the morning or something ridiculous to make sure we get in. But uh, I was glad to hear about that. Also, we did talk a little bit about uh, G uh, Gilmore Girls last week. That was our DVD shelf last week. Sasha loves shows like The X-Files or Lost or The Wire more, but Gilmore Girls would be uh, the desert island pick. Laughs and tears. That, sounds, that seems about right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I recognize that there are technically better shows, but... Gilmore Girls and the OC are way up there for me and definitely qualify for Desert Island. Yeah. I also talked uh, Orphan Black and its eventful finale with Carolyn and DePayan. My review is up at Sound on Sight, and we're going to talk about that later in the podcast, but uh, just thought I'd mention that. Uh, there's a lot going on at Sound on Sight this month. It's still Monsters Month, so there's a bunch of uh, fun articles going up about that. Um, and, uh, yeah, there's there's a bunch of new, you know, new shows are premiering or just premiered, and we're gonna be talking about a bunch of those in this this week, but our coverage of all those different summer shows is still is it's uh, we've done a pretty good job I think this summer making sure we kind of got everything covered for you guys. So uh, look forward I look forward to seeing more of those reviews start to pop out in these next few weeks. But speaking of, we should get into our week in TV because there's quite a few things to talk about. Oh, we should, and uh, you and listeners can play the guessing game. Two of the episodes that we'll be talking about made me weep, so go ahead and make Ooh. your predictions. Ooh, interesting. Okay, well, without any further ado, let's, let's kick things off. So we'll take a break, and we'll come back with our week in comedy and reality. This week in comedy and reality, I'm going to preview a little bit of Wilfred, which is starting up this week, of course. Then Sean's going to talk Rising Star. We'll both chip in on So You Think You Can Dance. And then it's time for the comedies, the Almost Royal pilot in second episode. And then Adventure Time, Furniture and Meat, and the Enlisted finale, A Live Day. I'm uh, throwing in one of my votes on, on that one, I think. But... Uh, but anyways, let's kick things off with Wilfred, which is starting its final season this week. I've seen the first two episodes of the season, and I I, I was a big fan of some of the earlier seasons of Wilfred. I want to say by like season three, it really found its groove. But this last season, I was very disappointed by. There was a new showrunner, and the, the shift in tone of the comedy, and also just the whole show, was very disappointing to me. I laughed a lot less last season. This season, with these first two episodes... I, I like them more than the end of last season, but the show is now, it's a very different show in that it feels 
far more concerned with the mythology of the show. It basically feels like a suspense drama. Not even, not like a thriller or anything, but it's basically a, a mystery and sort of genre show now when I really would like to be watching a comedy. And that might just be my fault. That might not be a problem with the show, but I'm not interested in the direction that it's been going and that specifically with these first two episodes, it has gone. So I, I kind of doubt that I will set aside the time to, to keep up with Wilfred this season, even though it's the final season, because I didn't really laugh in these first two episodes. And this used to be a show I had it in my top 10 of the year a few seasons back. And I just, I'm really disappointed, I guess, more than anything else. I am going to force you to watch it, so okay. you should be prepared for that. Fair enough. I'm making you watch so you think you can dance, so, I, I, you know, t- turnabout's fair play. Yeah, I think so. It's such an important show for me, and so I'm very much looking forward to talking about it with you, and if that just ends up being arguments, I'm okay with that. Well, that can be fun, too. Um, speaking of arguments, yeah. any arguments on Rising Star? I know some of these singing shows can have some behind-the-scenes drama. Um, This was semi-interesting. I, I like the people involved, kind of. So Josh Groban is the host, and he did a great job with this. He was very improv and like that caught him a couple times, and he fumbled around a little bit, but I found that aspect kind of endearing. The panelists are um, Brad Paisley, who is a country singer who I don't know, uh, Ludacris, who, the hip-hop artist who I really love, and Kesha, who I absolutely hate, uh, they all at least had somewhat intelligent things to say about the performers. So I, I don't think this is, and it didn't do that well in terms of ratings. Uh, I was going up against, I think, America's Got Talent, which might have been a problem. But um, even so, this isn't going to be the next The Voice. But uh, the hook here is that it has viewer interaction. So you kind of get to check in as a judge before a performer goes on, and then based on how many people check in, they have to garner 70% of the votes to, to move past the audition rounds. And then each judge gets a vote that counts for 7% total. So it was kind of fun. Um, I, I think if this catches on at all, it'll be because of that interactive element. I'll probably stick around and watch this season. Uh, I stuck around with all of the X Factor for some reason. Um, but uh, like, like with all of the singing competitions, really, it really comes down to the shift from auditions to the live show. So I'll have more to say about that when we get there. Fair enough. And, uh, you know, I did, like I said earlier, I made you watch So You Think You Can Dance. So let me know if I need to tune in at a certain point with Rising Star. And I, 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 I'm willing to do that at least a few times, depending on how much, uh, you know, how it goes. So keep, keep me in the loop. Will do. Yeah, there was only one of the ten performers who was very, very good. The rest of them were kind of just okay. Interesting. Well, hopefully that that uh, percentage will will rise as as the show continues. Let's talk a little bit about the final audition episode of So You Think You Can Dance. They headed down to Atlanta next week. Of course, we're going to have callbacks and then the Green Mile and all of that. But uh, for now, we're finishing up the auditions. What did you think of Atlanta? Uh, great, great for me because all the hip hop inspired stuff I think is stuff that I really enjoy. Um, but the one that stood out the most, I think, was actually the first auditioner. It was the the woman who did jazz, who was just stunning. There were a couple of the, the pop, uh, lock and pops that I, I thought were good and entertaining, but she was the standout to me. Yeah, I really have enjoyed several of the jazz 
auditions that we've seen this season and I always appreciate when they highlight some of these different styles that maybe don't get a lot of play on the actual show and uh, certainly the jazz choreography isn't always fantastic at least the the numbers I've seen so I, I appreciate when they do you know like like I said highlight these different types I, I noticed them also highlighting ballerinas in in this opening section they usually like to highlight tap if it comes up in, in the auditions as well. So it's been, you know, I appre I also agree. I, th I thought her audition was really great. I always enjoy Dragon House. Have you seen any of the other Dragon House dancers, by the way? Uh, no, just from the clips that they've shown on here. The one guy who has kind of jumped on as a guest to just help with some auditioners is amazing, and I want to see more performances by him. Yeah, Cyrus, he's part of Dragon House, and you do yourself a favor, and uh, when we're done here, YouTube Dragon House auditions, because three of the guys from Dragon House auditioned two seasons ago, and each of their auditions were amazing. Only one of them ended up going onto the show because they all really struggled with the choreography, being able to partner and all do all these other styles, but... But yeah, and there was another Dragon House guy who got on last season as well, Blueprint, who made it up to, to, the, to the top 20. And uh, they all, those are some amazing auditions, so you should check it out. We got another kid dancing, which was uh, rather cute. That one felt like more of a stretch. Usually when they have a kid on it, or it's because the they're t connected to somebody who goes through or is really good. And I thought that that audition was only okay, and uh, hopefully we'll come back and have a better audition in the next uh, next season. Uh, but yeah, that that was, I felt bad for the kid. It was like, dance, puppet, dance. I know you're sleepy, but. <laughs> um, the other thing was, because I have not seen this before this season, is ballroom notoriously difficult? Because they usually ask auditioners about that and they get kind of uh, yeah. embarrassed if they haven't dabbled in that. Well, one of the judges was a uh, was a championship ballroom dancer. And did like she said this week. He did that for thirty years. He uh, did ballroom for thirty years. So obviously she's always very uh, particular about ballroom and enjoys the ballroom auditions and stuff. Uh, the thing with ballroom is that it's just very different than something like hip hop or contemporary. You have to have very uh, you have to have a lot of control uh, over your your shoulders and hips, and it's a very different type of movement. So usually the ballroom people kind of struggle to do some of the, maybe not contemporary, but hip hop and some of the other things. And the watching the the non ballroom people try to do, for example, uh, the waltz, like the Viennese waltz, usually destroys people, or the the quick step, or uh, foxtrot, or or even some of the Latin numbers too. So what you know, it's it it's a lovely. These are they're they're each lovely and and really compelling different styles of dance. But there's often it's harder to go from one to the other than it is to go from, say, contemporary to or like ballet to contemporary or jazz to contemporary or even maybe to hip hop and back in contemporary. But ballroom, you have to be very precise and you have to move in a particular kind of way that is antithetical to a lot of the other types of dancers. Gotcha. So I'll, I'll be on the lookout for that then. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's always fun watching people, you know, see, and especially when people are able to do it. Like last year, Fiction and Amy did uh, a, a Viennese waltz that was just lovely. It was really gorgeous. And knowing how challenging it often is to go from hip hop to ballroom made the that transition for Fiction particularly impressive. So these are these are the things that you'll start to, you know, pick up on watching So You Think You Could Dance. Maybe. I'm sure that we have some dancers listening who just, you know, are yelling at their, their iPods or other 
podcatching devices because I am just full of it. But uh, that's that's the impression of a non-dancer, at least. Uh, we're so full of it at various points on this, it doesn't matter. Good times, good times. Well, speaking of people being full of it, let's talk a little bit about the Almost Royal pilot and second episode, which which you watched. I talked about it last week a little bit. Did it work better for you than it did for me? Um, I, I think it did, maybe slightly, and uh, a few of the reviews that I've read have basically said this should be funnier, and I, I did find myself laughing out loud a few times. Uh, I wish, though, that maybe the comedy could be more biting. So the the Sasha Baron Cohen stuff that we've seen, like that gets very vulgar and offensive, and oftentimes it does that very well, which is actually incredibly difficult to to do that without um, coming off like incredibly condescending, and then so the viewers just completely tune out. But uh, this was kind of just benign a lot of the time, and it did make me laugh. But I guess the the bottom line for me going forward is if it could just be more edgy in its comedy, I think it would go in a much better direction. Yeah, the thing that, again, I kind of take away from it is I, I do think that the two actors are better than the material, maybe. And I don't know how that, yeah, like, I think they do a good job. I just, like, I wasn't laughing. And maybe, that, like you said, that, that uh, different approach to the humor or the satire would, would help. But uh, I don't know. So are you going to, you're going to keep watching then? Yeah, yeah, I'll keep watching. The, the performers, like you said, are good, um, so it's a relatively small commitment. Yeah, fair enough. It's always easier to commit to a 22-minute show. <laughs> it really is. It's so strange how that works on you mentally, and like, I would sooner watch four episodes of that, because I would be able to like think that I could do that than seeing you know one episode of a drama. And well, does that stack for you? Would you rather watch eight episodes of Adventure Time <laughs> than, than one of uh, a drama? And if so, did you watch this week's uh, Furniture and Meat? That was a fantastic transition there. Yeah, I mean, that definitely does stack. And I uh, did see the episode, which posed a question that a lot of us probably ask ourselves. What would you do with all the money if you had it? And if you do the stuff that, that Finn and Jake do, I, I don't necessarily think that you're that bad of a person. Oh, come on. Jake was being terrible through this. And, and I, you know, I really appreciate that because he's one of our heroes. But he turns into a jackass and Finn calls him I on know. it, you know. But I like that they don't back away from it. That's That was the best part, yeah. I, I imagine that the reason that I say that uh, I, I wouldn't judge just because some of that stuff is so tempting. So mm -hmm. I'm, with, I'm with Jake on this. Eat the money. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Just them walking around with the outfits made of bags of gold, you know? Mm-hmm. And I had re in my catch-up, I had only fairly recently seen the the psychic, something psychic war elephant for the first time. And so I had actually seen that other episode, so that was kind of amazing, uh, seeing that pop back up here. And uh, I like that <laughs> you just don't, it's just kind of theoretically in their front yard, just chilling. <laughs> yeah, um, the... The other character who I guess is a recurring one, the, was the princess there? Oh, uh, Princess Wildberry? Yes, yeah, I didn't know her. Yeah, she's she's popped up a few times. Bimo there, I'm guessing, he seems like he's like a, a Game Boy or something. Uh, he's a, a recurring character. That was a lot of fun, the whole Robin Hood aspect to it. Mm. Yeah, no, Adventure Time's a good time. Now, what, what did you think, this one or last week's? Which worked better for you? Um, I generally... Uh, gravitate to the absurd more, so probably last week's, just because of how 
fun and experimental that was. Yeah, me too. I did enjoy this one, but yeah, I do, do still have to give it to last week's. Um, but, uh, you know, I always have fun with Adventure Time, and I'm just, right now I'm just delaying, because I don't want to start our next and last show in this section, because then we'll be done talking about it. And that is Enlisted, which aired its finale, A Live Day. I put, to up, I put up an article at Sound On Sight this weekend about Enlisted and, what, and how much I'm going to miss it, and how particularly I will miss its exploration of brothers and, and sibling relationships, which is something that basically no comedies explore on a, on a continuing basis. Something like New Girl, they had Linda Cardellini come in for like three episodes this week, this past season. They have, you know, they have siblings show up for a few weeks, but then they go away and the, the main characters don't just, they just don't mention them anymore. So I really appreciated that about Unlisted and I'm, I'm going to miss it. I thought this was a really solid and uh, to, to great finale that mostly really worked for me. Uh, what did you think about A Live Day? Uh, you got your one for one right now because you said that this one was one of your guesses, and yeah, this this had to be weeping outright there at the end. It was so good for the reasons that you mentioned already, and um, for anybody who hasn't read your article, it's it's very very astute. And I had a, a look through like the whole television schedule, kind of trying to see where other sibling relationships might be. And you're so right that it's a vastly vastly underexplored area. Um, but what this finale also did was um, give props to, to Keith David's character, who was just kind of heartbreaking in the best of ways. And I know seasons ago when Parks and Rec was being uh, heralded as easily the best sitcom on network television, it was because of how it could be incredibly funny, but also explore things so honestly and so deeply. And this is something that I think that this finale shows that it can do as well. And then there's been pockets here and there throughout the whole season that have done that. But uh, this one was just beautiful. And that whole last sequence on the beach, when first the actual brothers come and sit and talk with Pete, and then the rest of the brothers, who is the rest of the platoon, it was just the perfect cap to the the short-lived, unfortunately short-lived season and series. Well, and it's... (laughs) It's so cliche, and it's so straightforward, and it's so uh, easy to be, I feel guilty, because I I have survivor's guilt. But you know what? It feels honest, and it feels earned, and just because something, you know, maybe something you've seen before does not mean that that is not true to a lot of people's experiences. So the fact that this last episode just is honest and is straightforward and doesn't, try to be clever with where Pete is at when they're at the beach there, that it just is goes for a simplicity and trusts its actors. You know, the camera like barely moves, it just it sort of sits with them on the beach as as Pete, you know, opens up a bit. Um I, I thought it was really very effective and very affecting. Um and I mean Keith David says we are brothers and I'm like, oh my God, it's so you're a TV <laughs> fictional characters, guys. It's such a simple line, but he lends such gravitas and such, uh, again, honesty to it that it's incredibly powerful. That's going to be one of the things that you just mentioned a little bit earlier that I'm going to remember this show for is being able to talk about tricky subjects without coming off cynical. And things like we're going to talk about Rectify later, and that's something that deals with religion a lot. 
stuff like religion and politics, and you can put military under maybe the politics subcategory. Um, it's it's hard to do honest and good material that I think most people can sit and watch without you know rolling their eyes. And and this is something that enlisted did in the military setting without me feeling like it was either poking fun at it or was exploring that material for cheap laughs or to to make jabs, you know, and that was just fantastic. And like you said, true that, that Pete would be in that kind of scenario. Well, and again, this is also an episode where there's an extended, prolonged uh, buildup and then payoff of an of officer and a gentlemaning a situation, which was just delightful. I like that each of the characters gets their moment in this last episode. It's very, uh, very well structured in that way. Um, we get to continue the the sparring between the different platoons between uh, Perez and Hill's platoons, and then just you know the way it all comes together is is really <laughs> when they're when they're listing off the what they're thankful for, and we get to. You got me really hammered, like, like really hammered. It, you know, it's, it's delightful. I, you know, this is a show that can do both. Yeah, and hooray for Jabowski. Hooray for Jabowski and and, and Lori Laughlin. <laughs> what do you think? Is this your highlight of the season, or what are the episodes that most stand out? Because we plan, we're planning on doing a DVD shelf of Enlisted tears that it's a DVD shelf and not a season spotlight um, but that will probably not be for a while so what, what are the episodes that you are most likely to rewatch? Um, I think a lot of people would point to Pete's Airstream which I thought was very good I think for me the, the one that worked the best and that showcased everything that I like about this series uh, was probably Vets which ended on just as beautiful a, a note as this and also kind of did some other interesting things that um, that it wouldn't have that this had to because it was a finale and that a normal episode could tackle outside of that so I, I'd say that Vets was probably the highlight for me. Yeah those are both great episodes and uh, yeah I look forward to our eventual DVD shelf for this one because it was a show that I was very glad to get to see and we got to talk with uh with mike rice on, on the podcast you guys can go back and and find that if you'd like but uh oh man so now mike rice has uh men of a certain age a wonderful sorely underseen show and now he has enlisted another wonderful and sorely underseen show dear lord yeah i mean it's it's taken brian fuller to his fourth series to get past season two so hopefully mike rice won't take much longer to, to get something up and running yeah i look forward to to what all of that team is uh, is up to next kevin beagle and, and everybody over there at enlisted but uh for now what wins your week in comedy and reality without a doubt it's the enlisted finale yep me too that's uh the louis award goes to the enlisted finale uh and i'm gonna miss it so now to cheer things up a little bit take a break listen to some music and then come back with our week in genre and drama
genre and drama i'm going to preview tyrant and then we'll uh, talk a little true blood jesus is going to be here uh, the dominion pilot as well penny dreadful possession the orphan black finale by means which have never yet been tried the fargo finale morton's fork and of course the rectify premiere running with the bull and i'm just gonna i'm that's gotta be that's gotta be number two just i mean it's rectify but we'll, we'll get there so first First, let's talk a little Tyrant, and that is the new show that's on FX. It's starting, actually, by the time you guys are hearing this, it's either tonight or maybe it's already aired. Um, but it's premiering on Tuesday, and it's from Howard Gordon, among others, who you people will know from 24, but also Homeland. And it tells the story of a, a second son of a Middle Eastern uh, t- a dictator, or maybe Tyrant, uh, who, who leaves who flees at 16 to America, becomes a pediatrician, has a family, and then gets called back home for his, I think it's his nephew's wedding, and then uh, things happen. There's conflict between the main character and his brother as well as, you know, his father, a very strained relationship there, and then there's also, you know, his wife and his two kids and the brother's wife and his situation, and there's... It's a complicated web of characters that are introduced very, actually, I would say very well in this pilot. I was not a fan of this pilot. I'm not particularly interested in the show. Uh, I really have a problem with some of the treatment of characters in this pilot. More, most specifically, if you want to tell me somebody's a bad guy, how many people does he need to rape for me to not like him? The answer is zero. And yet, that is not, you know, there. there's a number of scenes in this pilot that I really do not think are necessary to underline the kind of uh, relationship at least one of the characters has with women and with, with people in a subservient position in general. I really don't appreciate that. It just seems odd to have this show be entirely in English. It doesn't really make sense uh, why everybody's speaking English and it just never really comes up in conversation, especially when you have an American family going back to the Middle East where I don't know that everybody would be speaking English. It doesn't really make sense to me, um, but they don't really touch on that. And as much as I do appreciate a lot of the cast, I just, I'm not interested in this story and particularly in the way certain elements of it are told. What is supposed to be the most, I think, powerful moment of of the finale or of the, of the pilot here is something that Lost did better in a flashback once. Um, so, I don't know. I, I had a very negative reaction to some of the, the the elements in this pilot that others may not have. But, um, yeah, I really... I, I don't want to spend time in this world. I'm not interested in this world particularly. And uh, this is a bit of a misstep, as far as I'm concerned, from FX. It's very possible it will get better. They only sent out one, though. And that is unusual for FX. I'm supposed to get the second episode before uh, the before it airs, so I can chime in with that. I, you know, if they make that available, I will watch it and give my thoughts and see if that's just the handling of one character in the pilot that I don't like, but the rest of the show is more interesting. 
because um, usually FX is, is, you know, it's where I go for my quality dramas at this point on TV, especially on cable. So, uh, yeah, this was this was a disappointment. I hadn't even heard of this show, uh, really. People hadn't really hadn't been talking about it before a screener showed up on my door. Have you have you, had you heard of Tyrant? No, the only thing that uh, was on the horizon that I had my ear to was uh, the strain. I don't think I saw anything about Tyrant. Yeah, um, that doesn't seem like that. That seems odd to me. Usually, FX is really canny about their promotion, so that tells me that I should maybe not get my hopes up about what's coming. Uh, for example, they, for the strain, they sent four. With uh, the bridge, they sent at least two. I think they might have sent four. Uh, it's just it's whenever somebody only sends a network only sends one episode to review. If they're not, if it's a cable company, cable network, it's that's odd. Usually they send more because more have to already be in the can and they want you to talk about their show. So that's a bit of a red flag, um, completely extra textual red flag. But anyways, uh, I, I'm just kind of going on about this other stuff because I don't really want to talk about the show. The stuff that I most had a problem with, I can't really get into without spoilers. So I'm just going to say I'm not very interested. Are you going to watch the Tyrant, Tyrant pilot? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'll watch the pilot, but all of that is just rather disappointing. One, because of the FX thing, but also, you know, say what you will about 24 and Homeland. Those at least started relatively strong, so that's yeah. a shame. Yep. Well, and as it, I just, I, it started solid, but not particularly interestingly. And then as it continued, and I, the, I sort of turned off from the show from because of some of the decisions made in the writing and the, and the directing. Um, I can't fault the actors at all. It's the writing and the, and the directing. Then I, I was willing to give it less and less as it continued. There are some elements that are structured very well. And again, like I said, it's a strong cast. But um, yeah, I, we'll talk about it next week. Let's move on to the True Blood premiere. Jesus is going to be here. I've seen all of the seasons of True Blood. But last year in the finale, when they basically turned half the vampires into zombies, I said, no, should I regret that choice? No, you should not. I I'm just watching out of being a completionist because that's six seasons that I've seen, so I really ought to not watch the seventh and final one, and yet I can't not. So there's that. Hey, Tara died. That's a thing that happened. Huh. Well then, for real, yeah, he's died, just, or you know they're gonna undo it in it a couple seemed, weeks. They eat. There was blood. It there was, was everywhere. We didn't, yeah, we didn't see it like on the screen, but uh, we we saw her mother kind of cradling a bunch of blood, and everybody's saying that she's dead. Wait, wait, wait. Tara died off screen. They did not show her go from you know Tara to a pile of goo. Unless I was not paying attention at all. Correct. She was fighting a vampire. We cut to another part of this big battle that opens up the premiere. And then we cut back, and her mother's kind of just screaming, kneeling there on the floor, covered in blood. Wow. And now everybody, yeah. Wow. <laughs> okay, then. Yeah, I do not regret that decision, then. <laughs> Anyways, anything else to say about this uh, this, pi or this premiere? Yeah, I'm just waiting to see uh, some more naked Alexander Skarsgård, because he's somewhere out there being naked, I think. Yeah, somewhere on a beach, right? Oh, no, on an yeah. iceberg. Sorry, my yeah. bad. Yeah. In the mountains, he, he caught fire, and uh, he's he's basically I guess him and uh, Deborah and Wool are the the reasons to kind 
kind of maintain sanity because those are two very good performers, uh, even if the content isn't good. But, uh, you know, I'll mention a thing about the season as we go along, maybe, or just give a two-minute rant at the end of the, the series hey, finale. That works. Give me, hey, that's what we've done on the podcast for the past two years. It's basically turned into me telling Simon uh, what stuff he should have known that he didn't know from not having watched the earlier seasons, and mostly us just kind of marveling at the, the uh, ridiculousness. So whenever you want to chime in with the more true blood it's always fun to find out what's going on uh now you also watched the dominion pilot this week what did you think was everybody else seems to have liked it way less than i did uh are you with the internet or are you with me uh i'd say i'm with you like i wasn't repulsed by it it wasn't great by any means it was a decent pilot i mean i basically had the same reaction to this that i had to the Defiance pilot, which was a bloated episode, so this came in at about like 65 minutes or something like that. And I've not seen Legion, but for me, it, it built that world or rebuilt it rather in a way that felt full and lived in, which was good. The story wasn't that interesting. The characters weren't that interesting. Some of the performances were good, compelling enough to make me at least stick around. Uh, the angel fights I thought was well choreographed. So, I mean, for a genre pilot, he could have done much worse than this. I think. How much did uh, Anthony Head's accent mess with your brain? <laughs> uh, just a little bit, yeah. <laughs> By the, like the second or third time that I watched at least sections of the pilot for my review over at the AV Club, uh, I was more much more comfortable with it. So if I tune in for a second or third episode, um, I feel like I will probably be okay. But the first time, it was cognitive dissonance, man. It was messing with my head. Yeah, yeah, and it's a good accent, but you know, it's you know that's maybe that's why it was bothering me because the British wasn't yeah, sleeping through. <laughs> That's unfortunate stuff that watching a lot of TV does to you. Yeah. You were saying about... Sorry, I interrupted. You were saying about Alan Dale? Oh, yeah. No, just that his presence in any cast is always a plus. So I'm a big fan of his. So looking forward to more of him. Interesting. Okay, cool. Uh, you'll have to keep us posted on both Dominion and Defiance. I will see if I... I, I, may, I may stick it with Dominion for a couple weeks. I will probably not tune back in for Defiance. And I certainly will tune in for just one more episode of Penny Dreadful because next week is the finale. This is the penultimate episode this week, Possession. And I just, again, Eva Green, yay, she's really good and all, but I'm, I've am i checked out of her storyline. It's too, it's too familiar and too repetitive for me. Uh, I know a lot of people really love this episode, though, and particularly her performance. Uh, tell me I'm crazy. Um, you are not crazy. The performance, of course, is strong. This, though, I don't think... If you look back at the trailer for Penny Dreadful before it aired, you got a sense of what this show might be. And what it has become is something very, very different, I think. I don't know if anybody would have predicted the tone of this show, uh, the goals of its stories, and just kind of overall what it was aiming to do. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, uh, especially when there's so many different takes on horror right now. If you look at things like Hannibal and American Horror Story and In the Flesh, all of these things are very, very different from one another. Um, and for what Penny Dreadful is, I'm enjoying it. And yet, what it is is not something 
that will give you a really great story like that to latch on to. There, there are other aspects, I think, that work for it. Um, and so, no, you're not crazy at all, I think, for being a little bit tuned out at this point. Well, and what I was surprised about, what I was most surprised about about this episode is that I wasn't very interested in Vanessa, but I was way more interested and way more impressed, actually, with Josh Hartnett here. I thought he was uh, much more interesting, and maybe it was just because I've sort of, I was stopped paying attention to the latest uh, eye-rolling and gravelly voice-throwing from Ava Green that I was paying more attention to Hartnett, but I I thought he actually was very good in this episode. He's been kicking ass in this series in a way that you would not expect going into a series that also features Timothy Dalton and Ava Green, so yeah, he... He's a very strong performer, and it must be this character that kind of brings out some of the best in his acting abilities. It seems very suited to because again, the first few episodes I wasn't, it was, yeah, I was not engaged in the character or by the character at all, but I did like him much more here. I liked uh, Victor a lot more, basically just take him away from Caliban and I'm more interested, and uh, yeah, the, the ending was a bit pat. It, it, this very much felt like, and now we need to fill an episode because we don't have anything else to do before we get to Mina. So let's have her be crazy, have Vanessa be crazy for a week, um, which is unfortunate. So the the ending just kind of comes out of nowhere, and uh, I don't know. I feel like I need a little bit more explanation why all of a sudden uh, our he's totally the Wolfman guy uh, can exercise this ancient god. Is that just me? No, I mean, there's a couple of things that I'm curious about that I, I'm i not entirely sure that they're going to explain, which is kind of annoying. Um, yeah, so that was that's something that probably falls into that category. I don't know how much they're going to pay that off. I'd like to believe that, that Caliban is just out there for, like, weeks at a time in the snow. Like, mm-hmm. it's so much that he just gets covered and looks like a mailbox or something. <laughs> he, just, he just, like, open, opens his eyes, and you're like, holy crap, that snowman is a person. <laughs> yeah. Nice and creepy. That's that's the stuff on the periphery that I'm thinking about, which probably should indicate something about the story, but is also kind of fun. Yeah. This this did start off really promisingly, I thought, but um, they've really lost me. I'm hoping they can get me back with the finale. It'd be nice. It would be, and you figure if... It's only an eight-episode first-season order. There was some strong semblance of an ending, so hopefully that is there. Well, speaking of endings, we did have our finale this week for Orphan Black by means which have never yet been tried, and it was, as should be expected with Orphan Black, an eventful one. We got some some twists and surprises. I wrote my review uh, over and put it up on Sound on Sight, my biggest takeaway from this finale is not actually any of the, the the twists. It's that I am still disappointed with the show as much as I do love it because there's still no villain. How is there no central, strong, compelling antagonist, or at least entertaining antagonist, at the end of two seasons? Yeah, and it's not entirely that. Is that what a villain like that often provides is the central overall conflict. And so when you have a season like this and there are kind of like disparate elements of conflict that don't entirely feel fully formed, then your characters are kind of just interacting and not necessarily overcoming things together and growing from that or failing and having to to react against that. So it's definitely a problem. And 
there are plenty of things to like about this finale, I think, but that, that I think is, I would agree, the strongest thing that I take away. Well, and, and the character moments on the show are always, always great. I always love them. The character moments we got in this finale were wonderful, but, uh, but how I can't invest in the threat I'm being told about if, and I say this in my review, if, 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 uh, if Sarah can basically stab Rachel in the eye and then just go hang out at a house party, I can never be afraid of Rachel again. She has no power, so I should not be afraid of her. It doesn't make any There's too much in here that doesn't make sense as soon as you start to think about it. And I should... This is a show that is good, that is good to great at so many things that I should be able to think about it. I actually was kind of surprised by how well the, the Duncan death scene worked for me. I don't know if it's kind of been on the subconscious level that he's kind of settled in as an interesting character. But that scene between the two of them, I thought, was very well executed in a way that I didn't think I would care about something like that at all. Yeah, I w it was very moving, and particularly having that video of you know young Rachel on, in the background was was a very nice touch. And I agree. The we were only introduced to Duncan a few weeks back, if you think about it, but his death is very affecting. And uh, I thought Maslani that that was you know probably. Rachel's best moment. Yeah, and she has had more solid ones this season, so that's that's not saying nothing there. So that was good. Um, yeah. And, How and about hey, a dance uh, party? Yeah, I was gonna say dance party. <laughs> that was wonderful. Well, Kira should have been down there, but I, I'm guessing that was a uh, having to do CGI stuff, not wanting to have to worry about the kid. Um, but I, yeah, I thought that was really sweet. I and mean, yeah, it goes on for a while, but still. And somebody else pointed this out on Twitter. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, Allison should have had a little bit of better, like, more of a jazzercise-influenced sort of move, or, I don't know, she seemed like she didn't have any moves, and the, the, the lady has done some community theater, so she should be able to pull out a shuffle ball change. Hey, if she's there to slap Felix on the ass, I'm okay with that. <laughs> what did you, uh, so you enjoyed that dance party as much as I did then? Uh, it was fine. It was... So cheesy, but you know, Orphan Black earns those moments sometimes, and it's it was fun at the very least. Well, it also made me think that they were really gonna kill Kasima when when Kira has trouble waking her up. I was like, we we did just say goodbye, and she had a happy moment. They're gonna kill her. I'm okay with it, but I'm sad. And then they didn't. <laughs> and then Kira just forces her to read a bunch of stories. That's that's not very considerate, I think. Well, she had to give her the Platonium book. Yeah, yeah, of course. But, you know, your your aunt's sick in bed. Just leave her alone, for Christ's sake, you know? Yeah. Kasima is the best science teacher ever, though. That was wonderful. As somebody who does work with children, I I have to uh, really applaud Kasima, the fictional character, for her fantastic tutoring abilities. What do you think of the new clones? I am very leery. And I, I, I just, I have not seen anything from that actor this season that makes me think that, uh, that he, he will be able to pull a Mislani, basically. And that doesn't mean anything because maybe, you know, a lot of people do have enjoyed that Mark character. Um, and I know a lot of people are very excited about, about his reveal as a clone. Um, it does feel 
I was not surprised, shall we say, by that, you know, by that twist. It makes sense for the show to go in that direction if, you know, if they want to expand, keep expanding out. But, yeah, I was underwhelmed because I've not particularly been interested in Mark this season. So I'm hoping that the actor will surprise. I mean, these are the casting people who found Tatiana Maslany. So I'm sure they must know a lot that I don't. What, what about you? Uh, more or less the same thing. It comes down to, I guess we really shouldn't be so skeptical because the casting department has been very good, but it's a lot of material that's required of a character like that, and or an actor rather, and big shoes to fill. So, hey, Tatiana Maslany, by the way, congratulations on her second in a row Critics' Choice Award. Yep, definitely, and uh, I- I'm always happy when she gets when she gets awards. Uh, even just you know, if she just submitted that sniper rifle scene, that would be enough for me to to not complain about her her win. But yeah, there's a lot of memorable uh, moments this scene. <laughs> Whenever they bring back, I, mean, I thought I thought Helena's uh, moment with the other clones was really lovely, and watching Art feed her some more <laughs> was also nice. There's a lot to really enjoy about this this finale. Uh, Michelle Forbes not being a bad guy. How creepy was it when the little girl was there? That was that was super creepy for me. That was, and you kind of know immediately what's going on there, and it it had such a weird tinge to it. But the, the obviously Michelle Forbes is a fantastic actress, and so I guess that grounded it a little bit more. But yeah, more interesting threads that they've left for themselves, which will hopefully pay off. Any other thoughts on the Orphan Black finale? Any hopes for a next season? If it gets one, it has still has not been picked up. Um, like we said at the top, you know, just find some conflict that works consistently for a season. You know, I thought that probably last season was a better season overall, and that has almost entirely to do with that lack of central conflict. Yeah, I, I would. I think I'd agree. As much as I have enjoyed many moments, I think there there are series, definite series highlights this season. But I'm willing to give a first season more leeway when they don't have, you know, their their central antagonist or their driving narrative maybe as well established. Um, the, I'm I'm willing to give a first season more leeway there than a second season. So hopefully that's something that, that the writers will hash out over the course of the, the summer, and uh, come back next year. Assuming it does come back, we want it to come back with uh, with a few more ducks in a row. Yes, renewals for Orphan Black and In the Flesh. <laughs> yes, that would be very nice. I need my sci-fi Saturday, man. Um, but yeah. let's move on to our Fargo finale, Morton's Fork. I'm actually familiar with Morton's Fork now. I have having researched it for one of my Black Eyed reviews over at uh, the AV Club. Uh, a Morton's Fork is a, a reference to actually one of the Archbishops of uh, Canterbury back in the day, but it's uh, where you are presented with two options that are actually uh, present a fallacy where there isn't an honest solution or, or a positive solution between the two. Uh, what did you think of this this finale, and uh, were you as surprised as I was by how it all came together? Um, I don't know if I was surprised, but then I don't really think I had particular expectations or specific ones. I figured that both uh, both of the leads were going to die. Well, I guess we have four leads. I figured that, that Malvo and and Lester were going to die. Um, 
the finale I think I liked better than some of the critics who have, I've read who have kind of considered it a, a disappointing episode, uh, just in isolation, and yet the fact that I liked it a little bit more than I was expecting going into it doesn't take away from the fact that I think overall I'm a bit disappointed by the whole production now that it's done, and we could talk a little bit about that, um, but th this finale worked fine as an episode for me. Yeah, I thought it worked just fine, and uh, certain certain elements were better, and certain elements were maybe disappointing. But I do actually want to specifically address this notion that's come up from many different sources that that people were disappointed because Molly wasn't the one to kill or take out Malvo, and I actually I I have no problems with that because Molly wouldn't have. Molly would not have shot him. Molly would have, you know, maybe pulled a gun and then called the cops and come and arrested him. Whereas Gus assassinates him. And, uh, I mean, whether or not that's the right call, that's not me. That's a different conversation. But I had absolutely no problem with that. And I, I don't know that I think the show had promised us that. And so while, while I was watching it and when, when that came up, I my response was not, oh, I'm disappointed they got that wrong. It was, that is an interesting statement to make. What are they trying to say here? And what does that mean about death and the per perpetuating of violence uh, and what, who Gus is versus who Molly is? What did you think about that? Uh, I, I hadn't encountered that. It makes sense to me how it went down because Gus is so intent on protecting his family and his first encounter with Malvo obviously just sent chills down his spine. It was incredibly affecting. And the only way to overcome something like that, like, you can't give Malvo any time to uh, react to anything. You can't give him any leeway. It's basically just get him into a position where you can just eliminate him. And that I think that Gus did that out of not just fear, but necessity. And so, like you said, it didn't seem like the show promised that that was going to be Molly's job. Um, she's been such a strong character all season that it doesn't feel like a letdown or anything. In fact, I that that was part of the reason that I enjoyed that aspect of the finale, that, that Gus was so disturbed that he made her promise that she wasn't going anywhere. And that I don't think that has anything to do with the subjugation of female power in, in that circumstance, and it has entirely to do with Gus's character and what his needs and desires are. Well, and I also don't think that he asked her to not go out and then be, knew he was going to go after Malvo. I don't think, because I've seen that reaction a few places too, where people feel like, uh, like Gus pressured Molly into to not putting herself into danger and then brazenly went and dove into danger himself. I don't think that's what happened at all. I think he was presenting, you know, he was intending, fully intending to go home and hang out on the porch with the shotgun and then was presented with the choice, uh, you know, and had to, to make this very, uh, very much the same decision that he had to make in the pilot, which was, is he just going to go? Or is he, you know, what is his responsibility to go back to that parable from earlier in the season? What, how much is his responsibility and how much, you know, how much of the world can he try to help? Or in this case, just protect maybe. 
Um, so yeah, I, I, do, I do not see any misogyny or um, or uh, hypocrisy from Gus in that in that moment. And actually, I really appreciate that somebody on a cop show says this don't take this risk you have a family to think of and the cop says you're right i'm injured slash in this case she's pregnant i'm not as fast as i normally would be i don't have the same kind of backup maybe i normally would have i won't put myself in extra danger because i don't want to get hurt i really appreciated that because we never see that no and that's something that fargo definitely did right and a lot of it has come down to coincidence, circumstance, chance, uh, and so, like you said, the, Gus, I don't think, was going out actively looking for the guy. It's just when you're dropped into some of these situations, you have to do quick decision-making, and that's what he did. And it ended up being the right decision, I think, both for the, the character within the world and for the show, because I thought that that was one of the better parts of the finale. I appreciated that Lester ended up in a hole in the ice either way you know the 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 hole that had been cut for him by uh uh by, by our first two hitmen uh, ends up basically taking him in the end that was a nice little bit of symmetry yeah i d liked i don't know in quotation marks the key and peel's final scenes those were at times hilarious just like you know that was an easy answer right so you should have known that and uh and there I, kind of wonderful Cohen-y death sequences. And again, I, I still have enjoyed so much about the two of them on this. I want to see them do more dramatic, but comedically dramatic work in the future. I just, I keep going, for the two of them, I just keep going back to that scene in the file, uh, the file room where the one stands up and then the other stands up when the guy comes in with the file about, about Malvo. Um, so much fun, so much great uh, sight humor, and just their their rapport is, of course, so well uh, well honed at this point. Mostly, I just want to watch more Key and Peele, I guess. Uh, any other thoughts on the Fargo finale? Uh, just to kind of make general statements about the, the season overall, I think that I had a real tough time connecting with this series. Uh, the first few episodes definitely carried through carried me through just based on establishing that world. It was a really interesting premise in terms of adapting a source that you wouldn't think need, would need adapting. Uh, and so I was hooked for a lot of those reasons. But then over the course of the 10 episodes, I guess I just, I never felt compelled to sit down and watch this ahead of like other things. I, I don't think, maybe I caught one or two episodes live, and the rest of them I was very happy to just catch days later. And to, to make the comparison that a lot of people have been making, I felt the need to see True Detective rather soon. If not live, then at least the next day on the Monday, just for whatever reason. And that has to do, I think, with connecting with the characters, with the story, and maybe it's just the style of story that didn't work as well for me in this. What did you think? I think that I would agree about some of the Fargo episodes. The thing is, I had a very different experience watching Fargo than I did True Detective because, I mean, I don't need to sound like a jerk here, but because I got screeners and most of the episodes, I got ahead. So there are a few episodes there that I was champing at the bit to get to. So when we had that Blizzard episode and the shot goes out and I didn't get to watch the next episode for like two and a half weeks, 
I could not wait to see it. And there were a few episodes like that. But on the whole, I would I would agree that um, especially towards the beginning, I was more maybe enthralled by True Detective. But then at the end, when it just became a very standard show in, in the last several episodes of True Detective, the I was more disappointed. So maybe higher higher highs and lower lows for me in my reaction to True Detective than than Fargo, which was a much more steady show and and I, I definitely thought it improved quite a bit over the course of the sh- of the season or the series whatever you want to call it um, before before the end so it sort of followed a it had it had its high points maybe especially action wise towards the center of the season um, maybe the second third of the season but um, but I I think I, True Detective will be more memorable for me at the end of the season but I'm also going to remember being disappointed. Interesting, yeah, and they did kind of have a similar trajectory where the the first couple episodes were kind of enthralling, and then they peaked kind of in the middle, and then dropped off a little bit. But um, I guess I was more, I was less interested in what Fargo had to say about death than I probably should have been, maybe. And maybe that's my fault for not paying attention as much, and I was doing written reviews of True Detective, so I had to be kind of in that world in more depth anyway, so that might have contributed as well, but I don't imagine that I'm going to re-watch Fargo this year, whereas I'm kind of already thinking about going back to True Detective soon. Interesting. Well, um, we'll see where we are at the end of the year, what we remember at the end of the year when we get to the, get to it, but uh, for now, let's move on to a show I'm very certain we'll be talking about at the end of the year. And that's Rectify, which aired its premiere this week, Running with the Bull. I know you've been looking forward to this premiere. I got to talk about it a little bit last week. What did you think of of this first episode? Uh, you're two for two on the pick when Sean cried moments. Yeah, I mean, I uh, Rectify. That's what I have to say. This is like one of those shows that is in the absolute top tier of television with, for me, Hannibal, Mad Men, Louie. And I was surprised how quickly I got back into the swing of things. I had not seen the first season since this. Uh, and since seeing the premiere, I've gone on to rewatch the first season. And so there are a couple details that I picked up uh, after the premiere that, that I hadn't seen while watching it. But those aside, like immediately back into this world. And it's so beautiful in every way and thought-provoking and cinematically gorgeous, intellectually interesting. I have nothing but respect for what Ray McKinnon has done with this story and especially the work that the actors have put into these roles. And we could talk about uh, Teddy Jr. because I know you mentioned that last week in, in your preview and He's just fantastic in this episode. Not in like now he's a really likable character, whereas he wasn't that way last time or last season, but uh, in a way where the material that he's been given is as plentiful as, you know, some of the stuff that uh, that Amantha got in the first season or that Tawny got in the first season. I absolutely agree. And uh, like you, it was just... I hadn't seen any of this since last season, but it was immediately a very welcome and comforting, what it's supposed to be, I suppose, uh, world. As soon as we see Daniel in that cell with his with his neighbor, 
I was immediately right back into the world and I was very glad to see that neighbor. You know, like, I was so skeptical about that because Kerwin's last scene in the first season was such a beautiful, touching send-off. That was one of the biggest moments of television for 2013 for me. And I was worried that this backtracking might take away the poignancy of that and that that death kind of scene would have been diminished in some way. And yet the final sequence that we get in this premiere, which is that fantasy where Daniel takes him to the statue, is just one of the best things that I have seen in a long time. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm just sitting here. It's not very helpful for our listeners, but I'm just sitting here nodding and kind of grinning <laughs> along with everything you're saying, Sean. And uh, I, I just love, I love Rectify so much. It's such a great show, and I, like you said, it is singular on television. There's nothing else like it, and I'm very glad that it is that it is back and that it is back on such fine form. That sequence, just to draw attention to it, because it was after the final commercial break, and it lasted about seven minutes, I want to say, which is quite a lot for the kind of scene that it is, um, was so well written in terms of the plotting of it. And so I found myself crying initially because of how happy Kerwin is that his friend got out and was able to get out alive and experience life on the outside again. And that transitioned into crying because of how sad I was for Daniel that after all that he's been through, that he's reached this point where giving up might be the most attractive option and totally understandable. And then that you know transitioned further into crying because of just how beautiful Kerwin's response to that was, which was basically, I, I'm not really an authority and I can't tell you what to do one way or the other, but look around you. I mean, just saying, you know, and so impactful. Absolutely, absolutely, and it could, like you said, it could have gone so wrong. And it's such an intelligent way to deal with your lead character got the shit beat out of him last year, and he's in a coma. It's, I mean, it's such a natural thing for Rectify, but it's fun to think about what any other show would do in this situation and would do with their lead character. And at the end of the first episode, there's no sign of it being done. We don't know how long he's going to be in a coma, if he's going to wake up. This hey, For this show, he could just not wake up. That's the kind of show this is. Uh, so so to see the treatment of that, as, you know, the, the careful handling of that character, but also that statue and that, you know, was a, one, of the, one of the highlights and uh, most memorable elements of the first season, the way that it all kind of came together in that scene was, was lovely. Uh, do you want to talk about uh, Amantha at all or... or um, Shall we go to Tawny? Uh, either one. Yeah, go for it. Well, I yeah, and I, I'm kind of skirting around. I don't know if you can tell, but I don't want to say anything that is in a later episode because I did watch these back to back to back, and I've seen the first three. And I don't want to tease anything by accident or spoil anything. So all I will say is I'm appreciating, and I continue to appreciate, how Amantha is both the most identifiable character another terrible name <laughs> the most identifiable character but also not necessarily right i appreciate very much how she and tawny act as contrasts of different ideals of women womanhood but also of how to handle this situation of what the ki right kind of support is because all tawny all the time as as wonderful as she is would she'd get nothing done she wouldn't have gotten daniel out of jail 
and amantha is the one who who made this happen along with of course the lawyer and the what the whatever the case you know the dna situation was but amantha's the one who made it happen so i really appreciate the how those two act as contrast to each other in the show but also just in these episodes this first episode certainly and you're right to point out how she's not amantha's not infallible and it's a big part of her character because she kind of is the the easiest person to relate to as soon as you start watching rectify because things just frustrate her in a way that they should frustrate other characters uh in, in this rather easygoing setting that they're in um and then tawny provides daniel and the show with other things to relate to and to, to bounce off of and so they're absolutely in many ways opposing forces but also essential to one another i think if you look at them in contrast so yeah Another thing that I was surprised to find myself enjoying about this premiere or, or these first three episodes, and maybe it's not something that I enjoyed about the premiere, and it's, maybe I'm remembering this wrong. I like how they handle the investigation of what happened to Daniel, because uh, that element was not something I particularly, any of those characters was not something I was engaged with in the first season, but I was surprised to find myself very engaged with that in the, in this second season. Yeah. It's it's still not something that I need or am particularly interested in because it, it doesn't seem to me like that's what, what Rectify is interested in, but it's kind of used as a framing device, and that's fine. Um, but in this premiere, yeah, they I want to say that the sheriff's name is Daggett. I could be wrong. Um, but uh, what we get with him and how he has kind of... He's not turned a corner, but he's doing his job, which is in some ways making a very strong political statement and that's something that I think we can respect. There's there's so much more to say, uh, but I, I'm gonna I'm gonna bow out now so I don't <laughs> get spoilery. Any final thoughts on this uh, rectify premiere? I I'm just so excited for these next nine weeks. I know that if we had not decided to go back and do Hannibal season one, I'd be trying to convince you that we gotta talk about this for an hour every week. <laughs> Fair enough. And I'm, it, it warns it. It can live up to an hour-long podcast in a way that not many shows can. Uh, but no. No listeners. I know some of you would love us to do <laughs> podcasts about every show, but that you would have to pay us. And pay us a full wage, because it takes a lot of time and a lot of energy. As much as I would love to, I'm not up for it. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, because it is a wonderful show. And I look forward to talking about episode two with you next week so until then what wins your week in genre and drama she asked knowing the answer <laughs> it's both of the the cry awards yeah so rectify gets it yeah and uh for for myself as well i mean it's not even it's not even close for me um i did like the the fargo finale and i like the orphan black finale but and i actually think the fargo finale is a lot more interesting than maybe a lot of people are giving it credit for but i mean come on it's rectify yeah clearly a few show notes here before we go to our DVD shelf with Sarah Rodman of the Boston Globe. You can find a post up for this episode at soundonsite.org where you can leave us a comment and let us know what you thought of the week's TV and what uh, what wins you, your cry awards for the week. You can also send us an email, theteleverse at gmail.com. You can like us on Facebook to follow the goings-on at Sound On Sight TV and the Televerse, in theory, 
I promise I'll get back to you guys. You can also give us a rating or a review on iTunes. We have an M4A chaptered feed, so you can skip through all the shows you don't watch. If, you, if you're not interested in that, we do have an MP3 feed as well, and we would appreciate uh, a rating or a review. It does help other people find the show. If you want other ways to do that, or of course, you know, share on Facebook, share on Tumblr. I'm not on Tumblr, um, but I hear that's where all the cool kids are. And then, of course, we're also both on Twitter. I am at the Televerse, and you are? Uh, at Sean Coletti. And uh, again, just for those listeners who aren't aware, where else can we find your work besides Sound On Sight? Uh, besides, besides Sound On Sight, some written reviews will appear at uh, tvovermind.com. And I'll, I've got some stuff going up over at the AV Club, including Black Adder reviews. And starting this week, I get to review Spartacus. Oh I'm very God. excited. Season one. Yep, filling in some gaps over at the uh. AV Club. So I've just been the luckiest person ever for what shows. I get you. So Sound on Sight, I've been reviewing Louie, I've been reviewing Orphan Black, and now I'm, I'm getting to review Spartacus, so Black Adder, and I did Veep earlier. I've been very fortunate this year in what shows I've been able to either yoink at Sound on Sight or, or be, be handed at, at AV Club. So hopefully uh, there'll be some more fun stuff for us to review at Sound on Sight over the summer as our other shows wrap up. A quick note before we get to our question of the week. Uh, we did not have Sean's network report card this week, but we will be back to it next week. We apologize for the delay. What network will we be talking about next week? Next week will be the CW. Getting right back on track with that. And, and now what is our question of the week, sir? Uh, because I've read a couple of think pieces about it and I'm interested to hear more thoughts, um, Fargo or True Detective, just because they're not entirely similar, but there are a lot of good talking points there, I think, in comparison. Yeah, I, I would agree. And uh, and besides, uh, Fargo or Hannibal or True Detective or Hannibal, Hannibal just wins. So yeah, that's not even fair. That's, that's not even fair. So got to make it got to make it interesting. Yeah, yeah, let us know what you think. It's you know we answered earlier, but we look forward to hearing from you guys. So that wraps up our week in TV, and now we'll take a break and come back with a clip and some music, and then Sarah Rodman of the Boston Globe to talk the Mary Tyler Moore Show. How old are you? Thirty. No hedging. No, how old do I look? Why hedge? Yeah. How old do I look? Thirty. <laughs> what religion are you? Uh, Mr. Grant, I don't quite know how to say this, but uh, you're not allowed to ask that when someone's applying for a job. It's, it's against the law. Want to call a cop? <laughs> no. Good. Would you think I was violating your civil rights if I asked if you're married? Presbyterian. <laughs> uh, well, I, I, I decided I'd answer your religion question. <laughs> Divorced? No. Never married? No. Why? Why? Mm. You type. Mr. Grant, there's no simple answer to that question. Yes, there is. How about, no, I can't type, or yes, I can. <laughs> there's no simple answer to why a person isn't married. How many different reasons can there be? Sixty-five. Parts per minute. My typing question. Yes. Look, miss, would you try answering the questions as I ask them? Yes, Mr. Grant, I will, but it does seem that you've been asking a lot of very personal questions that don't have a thing to do with my qualifications for this job. You know what? You got spunk. <laughs> Oh, yes. I hate spunk. <laughs> How will you make it on your own? 
Televerse. This is Kate Kalzik, and here at the DVD shelf, I'm happy to be joined by Sarah Rodman of the Boston Globe. Sarah, welcome to the show. Why, thank you so much for having me. And this week, we'll be talking about one of the single biggest uh, gaps in my television history, you know, watching history until we set up this DVD shelf, and that's the Mary Tyler Moore show. So first of all, thank you for forcing me to get off my butt and finally watch the Mary Tyler Moore show. How glad are you that you did it? Did you love it? I loved it so much. And here's the thing, because normally we start off these segments by asking, why did you want to talk about this show? But if anyone has seen the Mary Tyler Moore show, it's obvious. So I don't think I need to say that. What I will say is, how is this show underrated? Because it is. Everybody says it's amazing. One of the best shows in the history of television. And yet, having watched a bunch of it recently, I still feel like it's underrated. Yeah, it's one of those funny things. It's like there are a lot of TV shows, a lot of bands, a lot of movies that, I mean, it was critically acclaimed. It did very well in the ratings. It was never number one, but it was often top ten. It won a ton of awards. I'm not sure. I, it may just be one of those things that it was long enough ago that we don't mention it in conversation now, but the impact that it had on shows that we see on the air right now is clear. So it is interesting to feel like this you know, incredibly successful, popular, acclaimed, award-winning show is underrated, but it does feel that way sometimes. Well, and it's one that, like I said, I hadn't made the time to sit down and watch it. And there's a few shows that I have like that. Uh, a big one for me is I, I've seen none of the the classic Westerns, so like Bonanza and Have Gun Will Travel and, and Gunsmoke and all of those. But I'm feeling none of those are going to compare with 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 this one. And when you say that it is so strongly influenced all the shows that have come since, it is still continuing to influence them. I absolutely agree. And yet, what I what I was most struck by in watching this, yes, it has fantastic characters and performances and writing and, and all of that good stuff. But this character of Mary Richards is still singular on TV, at least right now, because I cannot think of another show whose single female lead is not searching for Mr. Right. Right, exactly. And, you know, Mary did her her share of searching as well. The, the, the most sort of recent antecedent that I can think of is somebody like Murphy Brown, yeah. which was cut from an extremely similar cloth right down to the newsroom setting of, like, the independent woman. I mean, I think that, you know regardless of whether it's a male female lead character that you know there's always going to be a romantic aspect of it but it was not the driving force of Mary Tyler Moore nor Murphy Brown for that matter either although it was obviously an aspect of it but she was so pioneering i mean she Mary Richards and the people who created the show and the writers i mean so much of what we see now i mean the whole workplace as family thing i feel like Mary Tyler Moore was one of the very first shows that did that. And so it didn't have to be about the romantic aspects of her life. It was that she had built 
this community around her through work, which so many of us do. And that was such a big deal at the time. And I will say, though, to your point about the Westerns and stuff, I think that thing that Mary Tyler Moore does have in common with those shows and about younger people not investigating them is if you go and look them up, these shows were on for years and years. Mary Tyler Moore was on for seven years. Bonanza was on for even longer than that, I think. I think it can be daunting when you think, oh, this show was great, but I don't know if I want to sit through a hundred something episodes of it to discover for myself that it was great. Well, and that's the, one of the wonderful things about this is that is that you can actually just drop in and drop out because it is standalone. And yes, there are the character relationships develop and deepen over the years in a really lovely, beautiful way. But if you want to sit down and watch 10 episodes over the course of seven seasons, you can easily do that. Right. And not get lost. And I recommend that people do in fact do that. And you know, the great thing about Mary, Mary Tyler Moore and it not being underrated is that there are at least a handful of episodes that even if you haven't seen the show, like you'd probably heard about Chuckles Bites at the Dust before you had sat down to watch the show, the famous show about, you know, Mary laughing at the funeral and not being able to control herself. There are a few that I think that throughout time have sort of remained in the cultural mindset that we remember, oh yes, this was why this was great, the, the classic episodes that stand the test of time. Well, and again, of course, that famous line, I hate spunk, which is... Right, exactly. This <laughs> kind of makes you fall in love with that Ed Asner character, you know, Lou Grant, immediately upon meeting him. Um, and yeah, and it's a very famous pilot and also one of the best finales as well. So hard to do a finale well. Yeah, I would actually say it's the best. I mean, I know a lot of people talk about New Heart because it was so clever. And New Heart was great, and I did love it at the time. But that there was it was a great twist, but there was something of a cop-out to that ending. And, you know, Six Feet Under had the great Let's See How They All Die in the Future ending that was also incredibly clever. But for a, for a closing of a show and dealing with each one of the characters that you have grown to love over the many seasons without having any sort of clever twist to it, I thought it was one of the very best. Well, and one of the things to keep in mind is that a great finale episode is different than a great last scene or a great last moment. So if you want to talk about The Sopranos and argue about that final shot, we can have fun doing that, but that's a different conversation than what is the best final episode. And that's what I would point to with Newhart and with some of these other very, you know, these like I'm saying elsewhere, some of these other famous twist endings. Uh, the entire last episode of the Mary Tyler Moore show is, is fantastic from the very beginning to that shuffle to the Kleenex box. It's right. It's, it feels really, even as goofy and over the top as it was, it feels authentic. It feels like this, if I had spent this amount of time with these people, I would also spontaneously burst out into a song that makes no sense for the setting. I would not want to stop hugging these people. I mean, and, you know, Cheers had a sort of similar ending with Sam turning out the lights and saying the bar was closed. It just, it, it tied everything up in a way that focused on our main characters and not some funky thing that we had never heard about before. Well, let's talk a little bit about the, that that work. And, and or for me, really, the two parts of the show, which it. It took a while for me to warm to the the home side of the show, especially in the oh, pilot. Moved. It was the worst, right? <laughs> well, it's <was> bummer. <laughs> just just the um, just, watching the pilot, watching the early episodes. For me, at least, I, I feel like it took a while for them to find the right balance of her work life 
and her work family and then her home life with her friends. Uh, and once, once they all got to know each other, it worked out really well. But I think of that pilot, and maybe this is a controversial on the scheme of people who care about the Married to the More show pilot. Maybe this is a controversial opinion. But I actually am not that big a fan of it. I love everything that happens at work, and I, you got to love that fantastic final moment with, with, the, uh, with the boyfriend. But, uh, yes, yeah. absolutely. I think but often the pilot is, is rarely the best episode. Of the yeah. Show because we're getting to know the people for the first time. But what I liked about that pilot in particular is that we are experiencing what Mary is experiencing. We are experiencing the awkwardness of the first meetings and of the getting to know you of the workplace and the neighbors and there's something about that that's going to make it a little bit awkward I think which is true of a lot of pilots when the storyline is like this where somebody is moving to a new situation and so but I thought it did a good job of sort of establishing who these people were and that we had something to look forward to certainly and that you know that's that core relationship of of Mary and and Lou is there immediately and that's the single relationship i'm most invested in in watching a, a bunch but not nearly enough of these episodes in preparation for this segment is that the core relationship for you as well or is there another that you really enjoy oh absolutely so mary and murray comes in a close second because as the show goes along and he realizes how he feels about her and she has to sort of you know that that thing that i think that so many people have in life when they realize Oh, you're my best friend. Oh, you're my best friend. <laughs> <laughs> and but that the other person doesn't feel that way. And also in their situation, it was not tenable because of, you know, he was married and had kids and all of that. And I just I loved the deepening of that relationship and the covering of something that's so thorny for people that do have to deal with that in real life. But yes, for the life of the series, it was always Mary and Lou, which is why when they did Lou Grant, which, you know, also just as an aside, what a great thing for a sitcom to spin off such a good drama, like mm -hmm. so little precedent for that, if any, there had been some after, but not previous to that. But I was always a little disappointed that Mary never came to visit Lou on Lou Grant. Well, <laughs> and having watched this, I, I can't just, I think I need to see more Mary Tyler Moore first, but I very, I've not seen any Lou Grant and I'm really looking forward to that now after getting to know the character somewhat. Yeah, I mean, Lou Grant is another show that I think that a, a lot of people, I mean, you know, critically acclaimed at the time, did reasonably well, but was a really solid show. I mean, and it, a, you know, a precursor to a lot of the, you know, I hate to use this word, but formulaic procedural stuff, the case of the week kind of thing, in this case in news. And of course, we, I have a vested interest in this because it's my business, but it was a really terrific show. And for them to make that pivot from him being so very funny on the Mary Tyler Moore show to being so very dramatic on Lou Grant. It was a, it was a really impressive pivot in my opinion. But he also is incredibly dramatic at times when it's appropriate on Mary Tyler Moore. And I was watching uh, the Lou and uh, Edie story and yeah. he just about broke my heart at the end of the episode. Because you, he's one of those classic guys. And again, this is somebody that we all know, right? that is maybe perhaps not as in touch with his emotions as he could be until it's too late. And, and, you know, you have these epiphanies about your relationships and the way if you don't water and feed them, that they will wither on the vine and then you want to revive them, but it's too late. And then for her to go and get remarried, that was the episode that always really got me where she was, Evie decides to get remarried and he doesn't know what to do. And he's so very hurt. And yeah, they did a great job of balancing 
that real sort of human emotion and how painful that is, but what within that is still really funny and that we have to laugh in those situations or else, you know, the alternative is quite unpleasant. <laughs> <laughs> well, and for me, you just said it, the descriptor for the Mary Tyler Moore show is human. As far as I'm concerned, every single character, even Ted feels like a real person that I have met. <laughs> even Suzanne. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in Sue Ann Nivens, there is a character that, I mean, as much as there was a cartoon element to both of those characters, both of Ted Knight and Betty White got an opportunity to play, you know, drop the facade and play how they really felt inside in, you know, several episodes. And it just made the characters that much funnier when you saw them put the mask back on and be blustery or you know, be sexually aggressive or whatever the case may be, that they did such a good job of making the dramatic side of it believable and be like, oh, yes, these are human beings with emotions. And at the same time, they're making us laugh. We know that they're masking a certain amount of vulnerability at the same time. Well, and with the Sue Ann Niven's character, I, I knew of the character. I had seen probably some clips here and there, and I certainly knew in watching a bunch of golden girls when I was younger and for a previous DVD shelf that, that, that character, her character on golden girls was sort of a reversal of right. her character yeah. on the Mary Tyler Moore show. Nobody told me that she was Martha Stewart before Martha Stewart. And yeah. that is delightful. Yeah. And just so vitri like, you know, indiscriminately vitriolic and, and subtle. And I mean, so, I mean, maybe Martha Stewart actually took tips from her about passive aggression because, you know, it was a beauty to behold that sweet, sweet voice, you know, masking that evil intention. So funny. And, and you know, Betty White gets a, a lot of praise of like, you know, basically for the, you know, understandably for the longevity or for her career. But when you put those two characters side by side, it really is remarkable how terrific she was at both of those things being this sort of sexually aggressive, nasty, but but skilled in her own way and vulnerable in her own way as Sue Ann Nivens, and just incredibly sweet and naive and, you know, the whole St. Olaf thing on the Golden Girls. It really is, you know, two sides of the same coin. Yeah, and, and again, that, <laughs> those dimples and that paired with the wicked glint in the eyes, it is a truly memorable character but i feel that way about pretty much everybody on the show it's such a tight ensemble and yes a few of the characters uh go over the course of the series uh where with you know cloris leachman and valerie harper leaving the show of course suanne nivens only arrives in season four i didn't know that either i just kind of assumed she had been on the whole run right she basically replaced phyllis which as far as i'm concerned was a much more than even trade with no disrespect to the fabulous Cloris Leachman, but I was never a big Phyllis person. Yeah, me neither. And that's why I appreciated that shift. Again, for me, it was more that shift to centering almost exclusively on the workplace. And then when they were at Mary's home, it was still with those same characters that really made the show come together for me. But really this entire ensemble for a seven season show, it is uh, you, you expect there to be more turnover, I suppose, or them to realize that, oh, this character, that character from the first couple of episodes isn't really working. Let's bring in somebody else. Or for people just to demand more money and quit. <laughs> or yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Much more frequently now. The loss that I really felt, because Rhoda made sense. It was time for Rhoda to go and her fabulous headscarves. I loved Rhoda and it was a great 
that that show ended up being really great for a period of time. The, the loss that I felt the most was of Gordy Howard, the sports guy, which I feel like if anybody has forgotten on the Mary Tyler Moore show, it's John Amos. And he didn't have a ton of screen time in those first three seasons. He definitely was a supporting player. But whenever he popped up, you knew it was going to be good. And then, of course, he went on to Good Times, which was, you know, important and groundbreaking and sometimes funny. And it's, and it's I mean, often funny in its own way, but a different situation for him. But I just like to give a little shout out for John Amos because I just thought he was such a great character and how he gave it to Ted at the beginning was super fun. Well, and that is, you know, I enjoyed those scenes as well that I was able to see. And that's a character I was hoping to catch more of when I went back and filled in the gaps. But should I lower those expectations? Is he not yeah. in? <laughs> he leaves in the third season. And, he, and you know, the other thing that walked away with John Amos was any diversity on that show either. And that's not something that in 2014 I'm going to criticize a show that came on in 1974. But the fact that they did actually have an African-American actor at the very beginning and then they lost him and there was no sort of shift to replace that is a little disappointing in retrospect. Yes, it is a it is a very white show. That is very true. And uh, even and one of the things I appreciate about it is it's setting in, in Minneapolis, but that doesn't help with some of that either. Well, right. Exactly. But yeah, but that was another great thing about the show, that this was a setting that we hadn't seen a lot of the Midwest on television and that it was a great, even though it was a big city, like, you know, a lot of shows are set in it, but still it had some of that Midwestern attitude of the characters being certainly much nicer than they would have been if they had <laughs> placed on the East Coast and the way that they interacted with each other. And I mean, some of the way Mary acted was because of women's roles at the time but some of it was because she was a midwesterner too and she was friendly and she wanted everyone to be happy well just compare character yeah i feel like in in minneapolis we get uh lou grant and in in new york we get louis de palma right, right exactly. <laughs> slightly different slightly different Lou's, absolutely what are the other characters uh that or the other moments for you over the course of the show that uh that stand out that feel like maybe transitions for the show or that are the episodes you would really encourage people to check out? Well, my number one episode of the Mary Tyler Moore show that has stuck with me because this show came on when I was a very little girl. Like, I'm not sure I actually even understood necessarily everything that was going on in the first round because I was literally like six or seven years old. But I just knew that I loved Mary and I loved that she was on her own and she was taking care of herself. In fact, in every home I've ever had, I've had a big letter S on my wall inspired by Mary's M that she puts up in her both of her apartments uh, on the show. But to me, the number one episode is the Veal Prince Orloff episode. It's called The Dinner Party. It's in the fourth season. And this is the episode where Mary um, meets a congresswoman and invites her over to dinner, and she's going to have her dinner party. And at this point in the series, it has become clear that Mar Mary cannot throw a party to save her <laughs> life. And, and that's another thing that's like throughout my life, my friends and I always, whenever we throw a party, we're like, oh, God, I hope it's not going to be a Mary Tyler Moore party. Like this, just these things that have like entered our personal lexicon because of the show. So... You know, everybody wants to be invited, but everybody tells Mary how terrible her parties are, and Ted's mad that he's not coming, and then Rhoda shows up with an extra person, and that extra person, fun retroactive fact, is Henry Winkler, right <laughs> before he was about to be the Fonz, and he has been fired from the department store that they work at, and he's very depressed, and he's bringing down the mood of the party, and Sue Ann has made this very fancy dinner, Beale Prince Orloff, and there are six people, and there are six servings, and Mary <laughs> brings the you know, serves it at the table and Lou immediately digs in with the spatula and takes 
half of the plate, which is three of the servings. And so Mary is forced to say in front of everyone, um, you just took half. If you don't put any back, nobody else will be able to eat or, you know, several people will be able to eat. And it's just this great sort of exchange of it involves everybody on the show. It involves Mary's sort of angst about throwing parties and trying to impress people. Everybody's like core purse character personality comes out in the show. And every time I see it, I mean, I've remembered the name Vio Prince Orloff <laughs> this whole time. And actually, right before we talked, I Googled it to see if it was a real thing. And it is. And I think I might have to make some at some point in the near future to see what it tastes like. Uh, that's certainly intriguing to me. I'm going to have to check that one out. That's not one of the ones that I that I caught up with. So uh, I'm glad to know that that one's still there. I did some Googling and, you know, there's a list up at Vulture. There's a list up at, at AV Club of of top 10 episodes, top 15 episodes. And so I, I checked out some of those. Uh, and I, I got to say, I really enjoyed The Lars Affair, which is the introduction of Sue Ann Nivens. Yes. Such a fantastic episode. And there are there are a number of episodes that, deal with more serious issues but in a an entertainingly Mary Tyler Moore kind of way where there's a, there's the episode about Mary realizes she's being paid less than her male counterparts mm-hmm. but it doesn't become preachy and there's the episode that's the journalistic ethics episode you know where she goes to I think it's called will Mary go to jail right uh, goes to jail for protecting her sores yeah, and there's there's a number of or um, my brother's keeper, I want to say, uh, where where Phyllis is trying to avoid her brother ending up with uh, Rhoda is all I'll say about that right. one. But it's you know, but again, so there's a lot of episodes where the show is about something. It is a it's dealing with issues of the time and it's dealing with uh, very relatable human experiences, but in a way that never loses touch of its sensibility and its humor. And I really appreciate that balance. Right. It's never a very special episode. It's never an after school special. It is just what these people, I mean, it's very common on television now, but at the time to weave those kinds of storylines in without sort of making some sort of overarching statement about it was, you know, an impressive thing to do. It's funny that you mentioned all of those are, I enjoyed all of those, but, but looking at the next one on my list of the ones that I like the most it has something in common with the Veal Prince Orloff dinner party episode. The other one I love is not a Christmas story. And this is where they get trapped in the newsroom. They get trapped at the TV station with the snowstorm. And they're trapped on the set of Sue Ann Niven's Happy Homemaker Christmas special. And so I just am now realizing what those, my favorite episodes tend to be practically bottle episodes where all of the characters are trapped on one set having to interact with each other and sort of their best and worst qualities coming out over the course of the 25 minutes as they sort of bicker and and you know make up and make each other laugh it's the ones where it's the main characters just sort of wrestling with a single problem that are the ones that i like the most well and because they have so many characters that are so well defined so early in the show it's easy to set up like so many shows do now set up odd pairings that you don't usually get and really exploit how the, these different characters play off of one another. When you have everybody stuck in a room, that's a great way to do it. Right. And if you have a good writer, then you have, you know, a way to move people around that room yeah. in a yeah. way that's entertaining and not stale. And But I do have to say, going back to what you said before, and I, I misunderstood, when Mary moved from the studio apartment to the high rise 
as much as I loved all of the show and watched the whole thing, that's a little something was lost for me there. And I also felt like that's the show took a turn for a little more serious at that point too. Mary was growing up, Mary was moving on, Mary was, I mean, and, they, and that was all good for Mary, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it just felt more, I don't know, maybe because I was a kid when I was watching it, it felt maybe just a little too grown up outside of my purview. And maybe if I watched it now, I would appreciate those last couple seasons more than I did at the time. Because it was just like, oh, you know, her her balcony and her M and her fold out couch and her little kitchen. Those are the things that I fell in love with. So when she moved to like the modern apartment, I don't know, I didn't like it quite as much. Well, and that's one of those things when you watch a show like this, you get to, and especially when you watch a character mature and move on through different points in their life. That's what you are hoping for, for a show that runs for seven seasons. You hope the character changes, changes and develops, but that doesn't mean that you don't necessarily prefer maybe who the character was before they started changing, even if it is better for them to have changed. This is a conversation we we had recently when talking about Gilmore Girls uh, for the podcast with, in, in regards to Rory, where I liked Rory at the beginning of the show way more than where she is at the end of the show. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm right. It just means that I w- became friends with Rory when she was one kind of person in, in the first few seasons. And then at the, by the end of the show, she had grown into somebody else and we had just, we had just grown apart. So yeah. when, when Mary moves, you know, it's just, you know, grown apart a little bit, not quite the same. But both Mary and Rory needed to w- go where they were going. I mean, and for Rory, I mean, you know, not to get off topic too much about the Gilmore girls though, but that span of years was even much more formative. I mean, she went from being a teenager to being a woman. And so the changes were much more dramatic and necessary. But it was those bad boyfriends she had. Let's be real. Mary had <laughs> that problem. Rory, she had some trouble. Milo and Matt and some of those people just weren't right for her. <laughs> well, and then the, to take it back to Mary Tyler Moore, that is one of those things that, again, I, I so strongly appreciate that they let not just Mary, but the show's priorities are not her ending up with someone. And when I was reading and doing some research and finding out that a lot of the cast wanted her to end up with Lou, I was just, thank God Mary Tyler Moore put her foot down on about that and made sure that she didn't because that would be so antithetical to what the show had been for almost its entire run. Yeah, no, it wouldn't have made any sense at all. And I think that even back then, I would have been like, but wait a minute, we established from the beginning that that is not what was going to happen. And and honestly, like, objectively speaking, if you knew those two people in real life, they didn't belong together. Not at all. <laughs> and like, there's a reason they were just friends. But yeah, and then, you know, the other thing that was interesting about it is that they didn't spend, they didn't linger a lot on, oh no, Mary's going to end up being a lonely old spinster. That's something, you know, what's interesting in that Veal Prince Orloff episode, they actually, she actually says, oh God, if I keep throwing terrible parties, then people are going to stop inviting me to their house because they're going to be afraid that they have to come back here. And then I'm going to end up a little old lady tickling my cats. And I don't remember, I mean, and granted, I didn't watch the whole series again before we spoke, but I don't remember a lot of that. I don't remember a lot of, there were definitely like, time appropriate you're single what's wrong kind of things but there wasn't a lot of lingering on mary being lonely or mary yearning or it definitely was touched on upon you know time to time but it wasn't sort of the thrust that she had a full life and a great time and sometimes she was just single and that was just fine 
Well, and sometimes she was lonely or sometimes she was sad or sometimes she was nervous. And and I really appreciate the way that the show does touch on that. And in an episode that that makes me think of is the one that deal, that uh, addresses um, Valerie Harper's weight loss. Right. And it really addresses body issues and uh, body image issues and Rhoda's inability to see herself as an attractive person, regardless of what her, her weight is. To have that come up in such a significant and serious way in that episode, but but not negate the fact that this is a confident, happy, uh, self-assured woman is wonderful because everybody gets, gets upset sometimes. Everybody gets nervous or lonely, but that doesn't mean that they are defined by that characteristic. Right. It's not the totality of who they are. But can we just stop for a moment and talk about, I don't know if this is sort of pioneering or depressing, or but the idea that Valerie Harper, <laughs> that that was considered overweight then like <laughs> even begin with that like she must have been a size eight at the most maybe a 10 like she was not fat no and, i mean on tv now she would absolutely be considered that way but it's a little depressing to me that to think in the early 70s that what rally harper looked like then like was something that she was her character should have self-esteem issues about <laughs> i guess some things change and some things don't and they just morph you know, gently over the years, but I don't know. It's hard to believe that that was actually a problem and, and that they felt that they had to address. I wonder how Valerie Harper, I'd love to ask her now how she felt about that. Yeah. Well, cause I, it was something like, I think she lost like 30 pounds during the between seasons or something. Right. Uh, but yeah, well, <laughs> or you can just take the parks and rec approach and be like, Hey, did you lose a bunch of weight? Yeah. I stopped drinking beer and done move on right exactly i'm going to be a superhero next don't tell anyone yeah pay no yeah pay no attention you know that's one of those things where you i watch the show and it feels very relevant it feels uh, it's aged incredibly well i'm i still find all the characters very accessible and relatable and uh and and, and for a show that's about theoretically it's about a news program it could feel really dated but it doesn't well, they made it. They did a good job of not doing a ton of topical references, right? Like you didn't hear a lot about like who was the president, or you know, it was local news, which helped them since it wasn't national news, and so it could all be fictional people, and there wasn't a lot of sort of pop culture reference in it. I mean, here was a news station where like one of their biggest stars was the the clown, Chuckles the clown, and so obviously that is a a different time and place than we are in now. And so they, you know, I don't know if they did that on purpose or not, but they did themselves a favor by not sort of making it a topical situation. And yet at the same time, they address so many of the issues of the, of the time or the characters are very shaped by this being a show that started in 1970 as compared to 1965 or 1975, even uh, the, the progression of the female lead or the, the heroine as the center of the show, as the young uh, working you know woman, woman going out into the into the world to make her own way. That's very recognizable as a, 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 she's very much of her time, right. while still feeling modern. Right, that's still something that we're all dealing with. That the political aspects surrounding it, or the socio political aspects, I guess I'd say, surrounding it are very different than they are then. But we all can still relate to the idea of like going out on our own and making it happen. We don't have to necessarily, well, <laughs> I don't know about this. We don't necessarily have to worry about the women's liberation movement. Maybe we do. <laughs> I don't know. That's a different conversation. 
But, um, and certainly I, it was so great to see all, you know, Phyllis Rota and Mary being at sort of different stations of that about how they felt about it and whether they were actually talking about it or whether they were just sort of living their lives and trying to, you know, take the cause such as it was to the next level by their actions as opposed to, you know, Phyllis being an activist, I think was probably something that could have been problematic at the time. Since I was so young, I, I have no recollection of that. But I mean, that's also something that's still sort of sadly relevant. I mean, it may be dated in some respects, but it's something that we can still relate to. Well, and again, it's Phyllis who is in that role. It's not Mary. Not Mary, exactly. It's very distinctly that choice. And it's it's Edie who who leaves her husband. It's not Phil. You know, like the the, the choices they could have made uh, of between the characters to fill different feminist roles uh, could have made for a very different show if they had made Mary the center, the center of that. But she really is a very traditional figure in most of her relationships. Right, exactly. And it's funny, I think that in retrospect, at least for me, when I think about the Mary Tyler Moore show, that's not what I think about, going back to our earlier point. I don't really remember a lot of the boyfriends. I know she had them. I know she went on dates. I know they were funny. I know some of them lasted longer than others. But that's just not my enduring memory of that show is not of, you know, Mary going on a string of dates. It's of Mary doing her job and Mary making her way and Mary hanging out with her friends. And I think there's something really great about that, because I feel like that's the way most of us live our lives. This is what I keep going back to in a broken record, but it's such a wonderful show. And 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 the reason it works and the reason we think about it, I, the reason I don't think about her in relation to her boyfriends is that I'm thinking of the entirety of who she is, not just how she relates to one other character. So maybe I think of how she relates to Lou, but on the, on the whole, I have a very fully formed image of who Mary Richards is when I, when I think about this show and I imagine that's what will be moving forward for me. And she, when she really sparks is when she's at work, when she's with that group of people or when she's with, uh, with, with Rhoda or Phyllis and, uh, and, Yes, she yes, she is a full fully realized person. She does have relationships, but far more significant and long lasting and uh definitive for her is that that work environment. That's where she comes alive. That's what she wanted to make her life. That's the decision she makes in the pilot and the entire series holds true to it. Right. And can we just for a moment also talk about Mary Tyler Moore as somebody the the actress as somebody who was a huge fan of the Dick Van Dyke show. In fact, I would have talked about that if you'd wanted to talk about that because that show so incredible and groundbreaking and smart and funny and another one that, you know, obviously even older, but holds up so well today. She was so fantastic on that show. She was so sort of live and bright and, but completely different from Mary Richards. And in, in a very short period of time for the viewing audience to make that change. I mean, she didn't have this sort of Betty White gap between Sue Ann and the Golden Girls. I mean, this was just a few years later. I mean, in fact, to the point where I remember reading somewhere that they didn't want to make Mary Richards divorce because they thought they were afraid viewers were going to think that she divorced Rob Petrie. <laughs> <laughs> and so that like she needed to have, you know, a broken engagement, totally different character. And for her to come back, I mean, and really represent in two different decades a certain kind of woman and the role that she played and where she was and, 
you know, just everything that went on sort of romantic wise, work wise, relating with people, how different those characters were, but how much spark she brought to both of them. Like there, you know, there have been people in television and, you know, who have moved through television and film who've had the benefit or had, you know, the skill, I should say, to embody two characters and to really have success like that. But she's, you know, one of the, in the top 10 of being able to create, create two indelible characters and to do it in such a short period of time. So impressive. I was reading, again, I was reading so, some sites, doing some research, and she almost turned it down because she was worried about the character living up to, you know, her previous role on Dick Van Dyke show. And uh, oh, thank God she didn't. Oh, my God, no. I mean, imagine we'd be deprived. I mean, I can't imagine my life, I mean, which is, you know, I love my family. I have a full <laughs> life. Everything is very good. It's very rich and involved with many things. But as someone who writes about television and has always loved television, I can't imagine my life without those two shows. Well, do you have any uh, other characters or moments you want to mention? Any final thoughts on the Mary Tyler Moore show? No, everyone should just go watch the Mary Tyler Moore show if they haven't seen it. And if you have seen it, you should go back and watch it again because you've forgotten how funny it is. And I cannot say it better than that. I was I was one of the unbelieving few, or many actually, not unbelieving, but I did not have a full enough understanding of just how damn good. And I I feel pretty confident saying I've seen like 20 to 30 episodes in the past month or so. Consistent. Yeah. The show is seven mm -hmm. seasons, over a hundred episodes, a hundred and fifty maybe episodes. Uh, yeah, unbelievable, so good, and you know, not perfect by any means, but absolutely one of the best shows of all time. Yeah, it lives up to the hype. People, go watch it. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sarah, for for forcing me to to catch up with the absolutely. show. Like I said, for making sure I actually did. If you need any other, be forced into anything else, I, I'm your woman. I will I will point you in the right direction of things that you have to watch. Start with Dick Van Dyke. Well, that's the thing. You threw Dick Van Dyke out there, and uh, I've seen more of that. I'm a big fan of that. So you're going you're gonna to have to come back to talk about All that right. one with us. Excellent. It's great stuff. Well, uh, thank you so much for coming on. Where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find me at www.bostonglobe.com, and on Twitter, I am at Globe Rodman. Well, thank you again, Sarah, for coming on. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Televerse.